0: Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the passing of a Christian legend, and then we're joined by Dr. Kelly Flanagan, the author of a new book, True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really good to have you with us on what is proving to be another nice spring day here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, I'm going to be flying solo today, thankful the last two days to have been joined by Steve Koble, uh, Steve, the teaching pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. A lot of fun to have Steve the last two days. Uh, today, as we finish off the week, I will be by myself. We're getting ever closer to figuring out what the show is going to look like after my old co-host Ian Simpkins left. Uh, about a month ago, and uh, excited to share that with you in the coming weeks, hopefully. Uh, But today, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, A little bit later, about 420, we're going to be joined by Dr. Kelly Flanagan, author of a great new book called True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. I'm looking forward to that time with Kelly. We're also going to talk with him. He's a licensed clinical psychologist, so we're going to talk to him about uh, what 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 are the uh, lasting effects that he thinks are going to come out of the pandemic on the kids, on teenagers, but also on adults? And so you're going to want to make sure to join us. Well, uh, you may have seen President Biden address the country, address the nation last night to talk about the pandemic. And at CNN, they put it this way, addressing a pandemic worn nation a year after the coronavirus brought life to a halt, which is unbelievable that it's been a year now like this was exactly when we were all terrified and going what's what's gonna happen I'll never forget that first week of uh of yeah, stuff shutting down and schools closing and everybody being at home i watched uh rocky one two three and four uh, different rocky each night with my son i'll always remember that for however long i live like okay well let's just watch the rocky movies but there was such uneasiness back then and For many, there's still uneasiness, but there at least seems to be a turning of the corner, if not having already turned it. Anyway, it says President Biden on Thursday offered a plan to lift the country from crisis using a pair of upcoming dates. May the 1st, by which he will order states to allow all adults to receive vaccines. And July the 4th, when he said Americans can again celebrate Independence Day in person. So uh, I do. I've been doing this over the last couple of weeks, if you've been listening to the show, and that's this just to celebrate the good news, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, regardless of what you think of the current president or the former president or about masks and vaccines and and the coronavirus and shutdowns and whatever else, regardless of where you are, can we at least celebrate uh, the what some doctors and scientists have called the miraculous speed with which we have these vaccines available. And now it keeps moving up. And to think that everybody who wants a vaccine could very well have it by May 1st uh, is, is uh, tremendous. And it, again, it's not just a light at the end of the tunnel. It is a huge kind of opening at the end of the tunnel as we all look uh, for greater normalcy. I know we here in the Chicagoland we are still under greater restrictions than say Texas or, uh, you know, Iowa, or even our friends in Wisconsin or wherever else. And, uh, you know, we are all longing to, uh, to be more opened up. Uh, and hopefully that day is coming and the vaccine, uh, regardless of what you think about it, is going to cause, uh, is really going to speed up the opening. And so just to see dates like May 1st and July 4th, uh, I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, and it speaks to the speed with which Uh, The past and current administrations have moved here uh, and the speed of the federal government. And uh, I know that oftentimes there's such frustrations about politics, rightfully so. I'm just as much as anyone get frustrated by our politicians. But uh, this is going to be a huge win that they'll write about for years to come uh, in the development and then the distribution uh, of these vaccines to fight back. Uh, the coronavirus. Because I think something we've learned here is we, don't, we are not in control of as much as we think we are. Uh, but to be able to do this uh, has been uh, nothing short of miraculous. And we want to be thankful for that. So, uh, again, regardless of what you think of the president or the past president or whatever else, we can celebrate what is coming, that light at the end of the tunnel. I did want to make sure. To spend a little bit of time here talking about the death of just a giant in the uh, in the evangelical world, an evangelist Uh, as Luis Palau passed away, I believe, yesterday or the day before. Uh, It says this at Christianity Today, uh, Luis Palau, who preached the gospel from Portland to Latin America and beyond the Argentine born evangelist rose from Billy Graham translator to lead millions from more than 80 countries to make decisions to follow Jesus. Just listen to some of his story. It says evangelist Luis Palau has died at the age of 86 of lung cancer. An immigrant from Argentina who made his home in the United States, Palau became one of Billy Graham's most prominent successors. And as I said, shared the gospel in more than 80 countries around the world. Palau preached the gospel to heads of state in Latin America. And as the Iron Curtain fell in the USSR, His crusades bringing together a diverse array of Christians, including Protestants, Orthodox and Catholics. As a young man, Palau interpreted for Graham. I never knew that. That's fascinating. Who later helped fund Palau's uh, evangelism organization when it officially began in 1978. Palau began evangelizing during a historic moment in Latin American uh, uh, evangelicalism. Pentecostalism had arrived in the region in the early 1900s. By the 60s and 70s, Ecuador's Rene Padilla and Peru's Samuel, uh, Samuel Escobar began arguing for comprehensive mission, challenging an evangelicalism that they believed too narrowly focused on individual personal salvation. Palau, Palau did not follow this trajectory. His writings in Spanish critiqued liberation theology, and his ministry focused on conversions. Much of his later work, however, sought to actively engage the community, especially in his new home city of Portland, Oregon. Uh, Notre Dame history professor Darren uh, Dochuk wr- wrote this. He said, Palau had a great way of preaching the gospel in an accessible manner and planting spiritual priorities aimed toward personal salvation in Christ. But he also had a certain social awareness, if not a full-fledged social gospel, a message nevertheless that was aware Of social concerns. In the 1990s, Palau's global ministry began intentionally focusing on the United States. Under the influence of his sons, who took active leadership roles in the ministry, his evangelistic events increasingly became marked by rock concerts and community service projects. In 1999, the New York Times asked who might succeed Graham. Palau was the first candidate. Uh, It says Despite living out his adult life in the U.S., Palau remained connected to Latin America largely through the radio. The same medium through which he first heard Billy Graham preach. And at the end of this obituary, it's really long. I think you should go check it out. Uh, It says, uh, even as the ministry expanded in the U.S., Palau lamented the West's lack of passion for evangelism. Let us be challenged by this. He said, in North America and Europe, I find that while there is much discussion about evangelism, real evangelism is hard to detect, he said in 1998. The evangelical Christians of North America cheerfully pay any amount to go to a concert. They fill the civic center and even intercessory spiritual warfare conventions. But when it comes to -to face-to-face warfare, which is talking to people kindly but directly about their need for Christ, suddenly the numbers diminish. In too many churches, he wrote, the response to the challenge to proclaim the gospel to their city is, why should we be doing this? And this is expensive. Uh... We Christians, he said, have this notion that we know what the other guy is thinking before we even begin to talk to him. We don't. The Holy Spirit said he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Do you believe that, Palau asked and then said, I believe it. So a convicting message there from Luis Palau, uh, who had been sick for a while and now passed away at the age of 86. A real titan, a real um, huge uh, presence in evangelicalism. Uh, over the past decade, so uh, prayers out to his family, and uh, you know a life well lived. Again, Luis Palau. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk to Dr. Kelly Flanagan, licensed clinical psychologist here in the Chicagoland area, and the author of a new book, "True Companions: A Book for Everyone About the Relationships That See Us Through." You're listening to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today on a nice Friday afternoon here in the Chicagoland. Well, uh, we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments uh, by Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Uh, Kelly is a licensed clinical psychologist, also the author of a new book that just came out last month called True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. Kelly, uh, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Brian, good. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit?
1: Yeah, um, I'm Kelly Flanagan. Like you said, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been doing that for a couple decades. Um, about nine years ago, I started uh, writing a blog to, to share with people my thoughts about the the process of growth and healing and relationships, and that turned into a passion of its own uh, for me, which is writing. And uh, I published my first book, "Lovable," uh, in 2017, and then, like you said, just published "True Companions" here last month. And uh, and then in my my free time, I'm a dad and a husband. We have three kids. Um, they're now 17, 13 and 11. It's hard to believe, um, Mm. And, uh, and we're just trying to, as, as mom and dad, trying to do it as well as we can and making all sorts of mistakes.
0: That's awesome. So this is really funny when you just said that we could talk about this off air. We can share ideas with each other. I have three children, the identical age to your three children. Get out of here. That's <laughs> I, wild. My kids are 17, 13, and 11. So as you said, it was like I was hearing lotto, lottery numbers. You know, I'm like oh, I yeah. got that one. I got that one. Yeah, no, yeah. my kids are the identical age. So so you're exhausted and confused too. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so and now you throw the whole <laughs> college thing into You're like, what are we doing? Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I am with you right there with you. Yes, absolutely. So actually, later on, Kelly and I are going to talk a little bit about uh, now that we know we have kids the same age about how the pandemic has been and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I want to begin by talking about your book, True Companions. And before we dive into it, could you just give
1: us an overview of what this book is about? Yeah, you know, well, it's it's a different book than I thought it was about when I started writing it. And when I started writing it, I thought it was a book about how to practice unconditional love within mm-hmm. companionship, within any kind of companionship, marriage, friendship, sibship, you know, kinship of any kind. and uh, And actually, as I got into it, I realized, you know what, like as human beings – we actually hide behind unconditional love. We sort of mm-hmm. use it as an excuse for not getting up close. I love you unconditionally, right? So now I don't have to do the hard work of relationship or, or quit asking that of me and love me unconditionally. And I realized that I wanted it to, to be about a different kind of love, something that the Greeks called philia, which yeah. is at the beginning of Philadelphia, brotherly love, this this human love, this act of of walking through anything and everything together and learning how to be closer and closer in companionship as we go.
0: Yeah, that's great. At the beginning of the uh, kind of the description of your book, it says when we quit sabotaging uh, intimacy in our relationships by demanding unconditional love. Could you talk more about how we sabotage intimacy and and what you were just talking about, about how our demand of unconditional love kind of sabotages us? Could you unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, I think there's I mean, unconditional love is a beautiful thing. Um, I think it's it's sort of the foundation of any good and enduring relationship, but I think it's just that the foundation. And I think philia is the, it's the structure we build upon that foundation. You know, it's the, it's the house that we build. Um, it's all the blood, sweat and tears and the decor that goes into that. And, um, and, and I think I think that's because if we if we stick just with unconditional love there's a few different ways that we as human beings tend to manipulate it and as, as a mm-hmm. clinical psychologist who works with couples and who happens to be a husband who's got his own tricks up his sleeve mm-hmm. <laughs> myself um, I think there's a few different ways that we do it you know one is that um, hey you know quit quit pushing me you're asking me to be something that I'm not um, you're supposed to love me unconditionally the way that I am
0: mm-hmm. and and
1: what we discover is that it's not really it's not really a way of saying love me perfectly. It's a way of saying love me as if I'm perfect and we're not, we're human beings. We're not perfect. We're here to grow and to be transformed and to evolve. And I think that's what companionship can do for us if we don't use that unconditional love as a, as a protection. And then, you know, maybe another way that comes to mind is, is the whole like, well, I, I love them unconditionally, right? That group of Mm -hmm. people, right. From that political party or that religious sect or whatever. But we use it as an excuse not to go up and connect with them and to say, hi, well, I love them unconditionally. So now I've done my my duty, but we're here on this planet to learn how to live together and to be with each other. Um, And so we use that to keep us out of that up close and personal um, experience of companionship.
0: Uh, That's really good. Kelly, can you unpack that for a marriage a little bit? Because, you know, uh when we mm-hmm. do marriage courses or remarriage books, it's always about agape love, right? It's always yeah, it about is. the deepest love. Uh, and that we try to talk, not talk about companionship, right? Like, don't let yourself just become roommates or companions. But yeah. what you're saying is this is a foundational element, even to marriages. Help us understand why this is so important,
1: specifically to the marriage relationship. Well, you know. Well, first of all, I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who's aspiring to love unconditionally, but they usually feel ashamed of their ability to inability to do so, yes. right? It's just yes. one failure after another. And when you start to get ashamed of your capacity for love, you actually do the opposite of love. You start to shut down, you start to hide, you start to disconnect. Um, so in my experience, like boots on the ground here as human beings – unconditional love and practice actually leads us to shut down and disconnect. Whereas philia, it, it sort of incorporates the concept that we're going to mess up. We're messy creatures. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're complicated and confusing. And, and so when we mess up, suddenly we didn't fail. We just have an opportunity to own it and to, to name it and to grow from it and to connect about it. Um, and so that kind of love to me actually offers opportunities to come together rather than to, to sort of shut down and defeat.
0: And you and I talked in the beginning about how we have the same age children. How does this apply to kids? Because, as you know, as a dad, oftentimes you're told, You know, you're the authority figure and and we don't think about this kind of love with our kids. Uh, How does this look in the in the uh, father kid um,
1: relationship? Yeah, well, I mean, so lovable was all about, um, you know, the unconditional love that we need to have for ourselves and and for our people for for for, in order for us to really understand our worthiness. But but again, I don't think it's enough. Um, And I'll give you an example. So this was maybe a couple Chicago winters ago. I had just thrown <laughs> out my back, um, and so my wife and I had changed roles for a Saturday morning. And she's out in the driveway shoveling, and I'm inside making some pancakes. And uh, and my at the time, eleven year old walks out and he says, "Hey, when are the pancakes ready?" And my answer is, "As soon as you get out in the driveway and clear the driveway with your mom." He's like, "Ah," and I want to do that. Um, and and my answer, of course he doesn't, like, I get it. Pancakes are way better than Chicago winners. But my answer to him was, all right, dude, I get that. But think about this, your mom and I love you unconditionally. And because of that, we're going to continue to give you good things all day long. You're going to ask us for stuff. We're going to give it to you. You're going to get these pancakes no matter what. Um, but what do you think it does to, to our companionship with you when we want to give you good things all day and you don't want to help us in return? Yeah. Um, how do you think that, that impacts our experience of our relationship? And sure enough, he heard that and he went out and in fact, he stayed out for an hour. Cause once a kid gets out in the snow, that's what <laughs> they do. Right. Um, but I think part of our role as as parents is to love our kids unconditionally. Yes. But it's also to, to teach them how to be in relationship once they get out into the world with other people. And so I think it's a, it's a balance of both. Ah, that's good. And,
0: and this applies to friendships too. Uh, let me ask it this way. When do we know when to get out of friendships? Like when you've, you know, there's the brotherly love, there's you the doing the work, but I'm sure as a psychologist, there's times you say, hey, it's time to get out of that relationship. And I'm
1: not even talking about the marriage yeah. relationship, but just the friendship. How do you even know when to do that? Such a great question. Um, well, my answer oftentimes is after consulting, with other people to make mm-hmm. sure that you, you aren't, you don't have any blind spots to begin with. Um, and, uh, and number two, you know, I think it's less a, a question of when to get in and out and, and really more of a, a sense of trying to determine how, how close is this person willing to become with me? Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm inviting them into a deeper companionship, um, into a closer companionship, one where we both take mutual responsibility for growing um, yeah. and ownership of our own stuff. And if someone doesn't want to get all in on that with us, it doesn't necessarily mean we need to sort of cut them out of our lives. Um, but it, it probably does mean we need to accept how far they're willing to go with us and, and sort of assign that relationship to just a different space in our life and, and invest our companionship energy, our true companionship energy with other people.
0: Yeah, that other voice you hear uh, is Dr. Kelly Flanagan. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and also the author of a new book that came out about a month ago called True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. Uh, We both have the identical family—seventeen, 17, 13 and 11 uh, age kids. And uh, obviously, you're fully aware. uh, Basically, this week is a year that we're into this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, which is just craziness. So let me ask it two ways. First, what's it been like for your family uh, going through this year mm-hmm. of a pandemic? And then what are you seeing specifically uh, in
1: teenagers and kids through your work as a psychologist? Yeah, well, gosh, it's hard to encapsulate a year, isn't it? But it totally I, is. Yeah, I will. I will tell you about Monday morning. But this Monday morning <laughs> was the uh, the first day in 353 days, not that I was counting, that my kids, all three of them were in school on the same wow. day. And, wow. and as an, I, I adore my children, but as an introvert myself, um, just to have a little bit of space where there was no one else's energy in the room for yes. the first time in so long, I literally just felt my, my, my own energy level starting to increase. And, and the, you know, and then of course, because my energy's increased all day, then when they arrive home, I've, I've got better energy for them and it's all just in are and they're happier because they were with friends and you could just feel the joy sort of yeah. returning in just that simple act of, of going back to school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as a psychologist, as we were talking about, what are you seeing? Are you, we're reading all these articles, right? About kids hitting the yeah. pandemic wall uh, about yeah. the mental health issues in high school, junior high, all the way down through elementary school. Uh, yeah. What are you, what concerns you uh, for uh, specifically for teenagers and
1: for kids going forward yeah well you know i i guess specifically when I look at my own family um, mm-hmm. and I think this is applicable to I don't think this is exclusive to us i you know, I work with a lot of people and I see it amongst all families is I guess i'm I'm a little concerned about the habits that we've established during this time yeah. um, and beginning to reclaim some of our better habits from outside of it. I don't think we made bad decisions. I think we did with the best with what, what we could, but um, you know, and I, I talk about this in, in true companions, that it's research cited in a book called digital minimalism by Cal mm-hmm. Newport in which he, he basically shows that or talks about how digital connection isn't a bad thing. There's all sorts of good, good things about it. Um, it becomes destructive when it begins to replace analog connection in our lives. Um, So in other words, like I don't mind that my son is on Instagram a lot, but when he brings out his phone at the dinner table and now it's interfering with analog connection, Mm -hmm. that's a a problem. And it's a problem, not just for our family. And for me, it's a problem for his emotional and mental health. Like there's evidence that as soon as digital connection starts to replace analog connection, you see higher levels of depression and anxiety amongst kids. So, so not only are they like, Not only are kids right now struggling with a really unrewarding form of school, but they're also constantly inundated with digital connection, very little analog. And so their levels of depression and anxiety are going to naturally go up. Um, And so some of those habits we've established with our devices, um, I think some of them kids are going to be glad to get rid of, but a lot of them are going to linger. And I think as families, we need to figure out how to get back into a healthier relationship with our devices and work more analog connection back in as soon as we possibly can.
0: Yeah, that's great. I know you we already mentioned you and I have the same age kids, 17, 13 and 11. And I really struggle with devices and phones and, and, and you know, especially in a Chicago winter. And yeah, this and exactly. That. Uh So not necessarily what do you do in your family? You know, I don't want to sell you out there. But what as a psychologist, what would you suggest to parents, uh, both in their own use of social media, of, yeah. of devices, but more specifically for their kids? Uh, What do you think is wisdom in that?
1: Well, I'll tell you what we have done and, and what we need to do. And thank you for that question because mm-hmm. it, it just went on my to-do list. Um, <laughs> you know, a couple of years ago, we established a device contract with our kids. Um, mm. We went, we, we pulled uh, samples off the internet. We integrated them together and then we went through one by one. And if if an item got a thumbs up from everybody, then it was good to go. And if it got a thumbs down, then we sort of talked through it as a family so that every kid was bought in on every item of the contract. Um, but that contract's been thrown out the window. Like I'm yeah. not going to, like you said, minus 20 degrees outside, can't go to <laughs> school, can't see a kid <laughs> safely indoors. I'm not going to tell a kid he can't hang out on Discord all day with yes. his friends playing Minecraft, you know? And, and so that contract's sort of, um, it, it's null at this point. And I think it would be a great opportunity for us as a family to revisit that contract, reestablish it and, uh, and move forward. So that'd be my encouragement to That's families true. is do something that concrete. Yeah, That's good. That's good. Going back to your book, True Companions, uh, a book for everyone about
0: relationships that see us through, uh, particularly in the marriage relationship, but also in friendships. Uh, How do you fight well? Like if part of brotherly, you know, if part of companionship is fighting and getting through things and this and that as a pastor, I'm not sure that I've seen a lot of marriages that fight well. Uh, so what does it
1: look like? What are, what are some ways that we can even grow in disagreements and fighting wealth? Yeah, great question. You know, I start out every marriage retreat that I run saying, you know, when you got married, um, two became one. But mm-hmm. here's the catch. Before you, before you got married, each one of you became two. Um, and what I mean by that is that we come into the world with what I call a connective self. It's a self designed for us, created for us and designed to connect with other people. That's what it longs for. But at some point that connective self got hurt. It got shamed. It got told it wasn't good enough. And so every single one of us built a second self, a protective self. Mm. And that protective self is, is designed to keep us from getting hurt again. And so we show up in all of our relationships with two selves, a connective self and a protective self. And, and really our responsibility in terms of fighting well with our companions is take to take responsibility for observing our protective self at work, trying to protect us from hurt, and in and, and creating that moment of awareness and moment of choice where we say, "Okay, protective self, stand down. I'm going to show up with my connective self right now." Mm-hmm. Um, and both partners have to take responsibility for their own protective self. It just unfortunately, it doesn't work to be like, "There's your protective self. You need to stop." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, it just—it's never worked once ever in a relationship. So, yeah, um, so yeah. to me, that's it. That that mutual sense of responsibility for observing our own protective self and uh, and choosing to connect instead.
0: Yeah. And this would be my last question for you. I know when my wife and I many years ago uh, were in premarital counseling, our premarital counselor said to me, Brian, you're going to need to get better at saying what's inside of you. Cause I, I can just avoid yes. the fight, right? Yes. I, I can be in the name of peace. I can avoid the fight. Mm-hmm. Help people understand why, well, you know, people like me think that's a really good thing. Like, mm-hmm. look, I'm keeping things uh, peaceful,
1: Uh, But help us understand why that's a terrible, really bad idea (laughs) and what we can do about that. Well, there's a chapter in in True Companions called peace faking um, (laughs) (laughs) rather than peace making. And that's the idea is that one of the one of the protections we show up in relationships with is our tendency to peace fake, which is staying quiet, shutting down and keeping our voice quiet in order to avoid conflict. Um, and I give the example in, in True Companions of, of Jesus being a true peacemaker. Didn't hesitate to call people out, you know, even mm-hmm. his best friends, get behind me, Satan. Right? Yes, uh, I mean, even his best buddies. Um, and so, so we have this calling towards true peacemaking, which is shalom, which is wholeness, which is two people being able to show up with their full voice and learning to sort out the mess of that. Um, and, and that's the opposite of peace faking. So if we catch ourselves peace faking, quieting down, shutting up, um, make space for peacemaking and, and both of you having room to, to show up in the relationship.
0: Yeah. If my wife and I were in, on your couch one day at your, uh, at your, uh, <laughs> doing some counseling, you'd be uh-huh. like, Hey man, you're a peace faker. i <laughs> like, that's,
1: that is I say my it, thing. I say it all the time. I can see you shutting down. Can we just create a safe space right now for you to say what's on your heart, you know? Yeah. And those are important moments in companionship. Oh, man, that's really
0: good. Again, that other voice is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, licensed clinical psychologist uh, and also the author of a new book, True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. Kelly, it's great to meet you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today. I enjoyed it, Brian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today on this Friday afternoon. Hopefully, you've got great plans for the weekend, right? Like uh, going out, enjoying the weather, uh, doing all sorts of stuff. My family and I, a week from today, we are going to go for a little, we can't get away on spring break, so we're going to go away for a couple days to Arizona. Me and my wife and our three kids, uh, we're going to go to Arizona. And I was looking at the weather uh, the 10-day forecast, crossing my fingers, it stays this way. Where we're flying into in Phoenix, it's supposed to be 85 and sunny. We're going up to the Grand Canyon. It's supposed to be 70 and sunny. So uh, going to a White Sox game, and on that day, it's supposed to be low 80s and sunny. So I am ecstatic and looking forward to just being in the sun again. But it's not bad here in the Chicagoland area. Can't complain with the weather that we have had. It feels like spring is coming, and there is some hope on the horizon and hopefully life starts to get back to some normalcy. Well, Gospel Coalition had a great article, an interesting article, I should say, back on March the 7th. So a couple of days ago, it's called this, The Dangers of Doomscrolling. This idea of doomscrolling is something that was, uh it's kind of a new word that's out there and, and some kind of something that I wasn't really uh, aware of. So let's get into it. It says our world provides more than enough bad news. The reality is what comes around across our screens only scratches the surface of evil in our neighborhoods, nations and hearts. We're not surprised by that, but it seems we're drawn to observing this fallenness. We want to watch it. We want to scroll. Welcome to doom scrolling. An article at Merriam-Webster's Words We're Watching describes doom scrolling as, quote, the tendency to continue to surf or scroll through bad news, even that news, even though that news is saddening, disheartening or depressing. Think about that. That is what social media often is, isn't it, friends? Like we we go, oh, that's bad news. And uh, and so much of if you ever watch The Social Dilemma, so much of what they curate for us is just bad news. Bad news sells and it keeps you watching and it keeps you clicking The article goes on to say, when did we start doom scrolling? In some ways, the phenomenon isn't new. Digital technologies have just given us faster access. But we don't need algorithms to prove we delight in darkness. We might trace the origin of doom scrolling to the moment that Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Sin has commandeered the focus of the eyes when Noah's sons, Ham, saw the nakedness of his father. It keeps going, talking through the Old Testament. The pandemic meant, though, that most of us spent even more time looking at digital screens in the last year, and much of what we saw was unpleasant. We were glued to our screens as we read the heartbreaking news of the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna, and seven others in a helicopter accident. We watched for update after update of the spreading of COVID-19. We tuned into the political drama of the impeachment and acquittal of President Trump. We watched in horror of the deaths of Ahmed Arbery and George Floyd. We watched cringeworthy debates and other election year spectacles. As we turn the calendar to a new year, yes. That was all in 2020. We watched in surreal horror as a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. And while we did enjoy a moment of humorous Bernie Sanders memes, our digital engagement has left most of us emotionally exhausted. While it may have been fruitful to watch some of these things, we also need to remember that every headline is a sales pitch crafted to grab our attention, accrue clicks, and make money. Media companies profit from our addiction, To doom scrolling, they're motivated to keep us doing it, drawing us constantly from one horrific headline to the next from one can't turn away breaking news disaster to another. This is fascinating guys uh, out there. Doom scrolling is a thing. Again, I mentioned the social dilemma. I'd encourage you to watch it like they know these news organizations know there's an old saying, right? If it bleeds, it leads that uh, that the worse the story uh, the more likely people are to watch or to click. And that's why these things lead in it. But it can become overwhelming. It can make you angsty and angry and anxious and all these other things. It just gets you riled up. This idea of doom scrolling. The article goes on. Christians should reflect on how their digital habits are helping or hindering their discipleship. What is doom scrolling doing to your soul? Oh, what a good question that is. For one, he writes, fuels our anger. scrolling is like stacking logs on a campfire to heighten the flames. With each new article, we discover new links and new outrages that increase the heat. scrolling also shapes our hearts to delight in calamity. While scripture encourages us with the vision of the demise of evil, it also warns us to avoid looking on at the demise of our neighbor. scrolling turns our neighbor's pain into our entertainment. As our eyes take in images and headlines of hatred and evil, our minds and hearts interpret and ingest them. If we're not careful, our soul begins to be shaped by the darkness we consume. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, warned about this in Mere Christianity when he said, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is in the joy, peace, knowledge, and power. To be the other one means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. That's C.S. Lewis. Jesus urged his followers, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Where are your eyes looking? We must take our digital habits seriously, he writes. If you gravitate towards doom scrolling, repent of this habit and turn your gaze onto something or someone better. Tony Reinke paraphrases the psalmist plea in Psalm 119, 33 through 40. God, grab my head and turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways as I behold the inestimable, inestimable worth of your glory. Jesus is better than doom scrolling. He intends for you to see and bask in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in the doom and the darkness of this world. That was written by Jeff Mingy. He's the pastor at Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia. Can I just encourage us here that what he says there is so correct. So much of our media, our social media, our online presence, so much of it Uh, is just feeding us the bad news and the darkness and the divisiveness. And and we wonder why our culture is increasingly divided and angry and short-tempered. And so the question becomes for the Christ follower, how will we be different? What will will be the steps that we will take to not do this? And and they're going to take, as Kelly Flanagan said earlier, they're going to take very, um, it's going to require uh, very intentional steps that say, you know what? I'm not going to be a slave to social media. I'm not going to be a slave to the algorithms. I'm not only going to look at what they show me. Instead, I'm going to focus my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to put my phone away sometimes. I'm going to stop reading things that I know are not good for my soul, but it's like watching a car wreck and not being able to look, but I'm not going to look. But I am instead going to fill myself, right? Whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is right, think about such things. These things in the Bible that tell us they make a difference in our day-to-day lives. The dangers of doom scrolling. This is such an important idea uh, because the, the, um, the current of culture is going one way. And the question is, is the church just going to ride the current of culture? and doom scroll our way through our days are we gonna go no that's not good for my soul and we're gonna do something else great article here by jeff Minji. hopefully you're as challenged by it as i am well one more hour to go coming up next hour i want to talk about an article we touched on last week and that's shane claiborne urging churches to remove u.s flags from their sanctuaries do we believe that's true Or is there a flip side to that? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, should there be U.S. flags in our church sanctuaries? And when faith feels like defeat, you're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody happy friday welcome back to the common good here on am 1160 hope for your life my name is brian Fromm. thanks so much for being with us today uh i, I want to kind of tackle an issue uh that i think is is uh, to some people i don't even think it's you feel like this is an issue on one or the other but i do think this is one where especially generationally i think it probably breaks down where people just feel different and uh, it got me thinking from a Shane Claiborne article. Shane Claiborne urges churches to remove the U.S. flag from altars or add the flags of 195 other countries. It says progressive Christian activist and author Shane Claiborne, who has been on our show before, uh, has called on churches to remove the United States flag from their altars. In a post, he said, every pastor who has a flag on the altar should please consider removing it or add the flags of the other 195 countries of the world. To be part of the body of Christ, he says, is to transcend nationality. That's part of what it means to be born again. Uh, As of Tuesday morning, the tweet compiled 2,400 likes and 300 retweets. In an interview on Monday with the Christian Post, Claiborne explained that he was very concerned about this version of American nationalism that is camouflaging itself as Christianity. He said Jesus inviting us to be born again that we think beyond biology, beyond nationality, and have a broader compassion. The Bible does say God so loved the world, not God so loved America. I think it's always a good thing to have compassion, not be confined to borders and nations, he said. So if that helps someone, then I think that's great. Uh, We urge pastors, he said, and priests to boldly make it clear their commitment to Jesus is incompatible. Uh, with Christian nationalism, conspiracy theories, he says, and all religious and racial prejudice. Uh, and so anyway, he went on to say that he believes churches should remove the flags. And and I just it got me thinking, I'm like, OK, I remember growing up, not necessarily in the church I grew up in, but in, I remember in some churches, I think it was a regular thing to have American flags. I'm not sure it's that regular anymore, but I wonder if out there uh, you think that he is right. Uh, Mike Holloway, senior pastor of a Baptist church in Louisiana, uh, penned a column in 2019 arguing that American flags should be in sanctuaries out of gratitude. He slammed what he called a, quote, unpatriotic movement among many Christians, uh, among many Christian churches today who are removing the American flag because it may be offensive to someone. He said, I can't think of another country I'd rather live in or I would move to that country. This is still the greatest and freest nation on the world. Therefore, I love it, and I pray for it, and I seek to make it a better place. He says, as a nation built on Judeo-Christian values that promises freedom, not only for our nation, but helps others around the world who desire freedom. He writes, the flag represents a nation that per- that pushes for freedom. Uh, and so I wonder what you think out there. Uh, he, he, they go on to talk about how in the South, there used to be the Union Jack also on. To say on many sanctuaries, John Stone Street uh, and Timothy Paget of the Colson Center uh, for Christian Worldview argued in a recent column that, quote, Christian nationalism is too often being used as a scare label to dismiss any policy or person more conservative than whoever is using the term. Uh, and so, again, what do we think here? Uh, Stone Street went on to say we're all but guaranteed for the near future that anything vaguely traditional or moral and any appeal to anything higher is then the latest cultural fad will be smeared with this label. It's silly, he says, even more, it's dangerous. Even so, Christians must not abandon the public square just because they say mean things about us. And, but I don't think that's what this argu- what Claiborne's arguing. I think Claiborne is arguing visually on, literally, he uses the phrase church altars, right? We're on your stages, on what people are looking at in your church. Is it right or wrong to display the American flag In your sanctuary, I found this article that was just uh, written a couple years ago that says pro and con should churches display the American flag in the sanctuary. And so they give two sides of the debate. Let me give it to you. The pro side. The American flag represents the nation we live in, the United States of America. Our nation was founded on as a Christian nation. This author writes in principle and practice. Other countries have long known and appreciated this flag. This fact, displaying the American flag, they write, in all public places, including churches, reminds us why this country came by God's grace into existence and who suffered for it. That is because our ancestors wanted to be able to worship according to their conscience and not under the control of a state-run church. It was this Judeo-Christian heritage that dictated much of what the Constitution entrails, he writes. Most, if not all of the problems we face uh, can be traced back to the fact that we've pulled away from these original values and standards. The author writes, Uh, perhaps this is why Psalm 60 verse four says you have set up a banner for those who fear you in the Old Testament. A banner was a flag. He said God was has given a flag to those who fear him and him alone. Uh, And then this article ends before they get into the con. It says, in short, placing a flag on display in a church. Doesn't mean the worshipers or leaders are bowing to the flag or the nation above God, such as in Nazi Germany in World War II? Church leaders should make this clear distinction. He writes, for if we do not display the flag or indulge ourselves in freedoms, the flag stands for. Then what's our faith really worth in and outside the church? So I don't know that I agree with that guy, but it's interesting. He's saying here's the pros of it. Then he says the cons. In the local church, above any celebration of our nation is the correct and true worship of the triune God. His kingdom is the one that can't be shaken, and we are to offer to him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Shouldn't the physical elements of the service reflect this very truth? Although displaying a flag isn't referred to in the Bible directly, when we gather in the local church, we're more primarily Christian than American. A Christian is more in common with the Pacific Islander who is born again in Christ than the non-Christian who lives on the block or shares a cubicle at work. He writes, a church should be a testimony and a witness for the glory of God and his gospel, not a certain nation. He ends this by saying, this doesn't mean, of course, that schools, civic organizations or other similar venues shouldn't display the flag. We expect and cherish such placement because we know the context. And let's be clear, being a Christian doesn't mean you hate your country. We just need to know how to organize our priorities and celebrate being Americans apart from displaying a flag in the sanctuary. As with any decision in the Christian and church life, we must ask: Is it scriptural? Scriptural? Is it gospel-centered? Does it uplift man or God? Uh, in this instance, having a flag appears not to be the case, and so uh, that is uh, kind of did a good job of laying out the pros and the cons. and I, And I just wanted to flesh this out because we touched on this debate. The other day. Uh, But I do think that there's much more to it. There's more nuance to it. I'll put my cards on the table. I lead a church. We do not have an American flag in our church uh, because uh, I don't think it's appropriate. I think it's confusing. Uh, and so therefore, but I'm also, I, I consider myself to be a really patriotic person. Love the 4th of July parade, right? Love when people hang the American flag outside their homes. I just think the church sanctuary is different. And so I don't think this is a matter of patriot or not patriot. I don't think this is a matter of proud to be an American or not proud to be an American. I think this is what is um, appropriately displayed within the church sanctuary, within the church. Uh, And so I fall on the, it is not appropriate to have a flag, uh, but I could see the ability to have flags of multiple nations, including America, to kind of give a a picture of God as as ruler of the world, as over all the kingdoms of this world. But maybe you think I'm wrong. I wanted to bring this up just to get a little debate going, and maybe you could uh, let me know where we are wrong. Well, coming up next, one of our favorite pastors, we're going, to list, uh, we're going to read his latest blog post, that being Scott Sauls. He wrote, when faith feels like defeat. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good You're on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on uh, what is a nice Friday. Hopefully you've got big plans for this weekend. I just love when it comes to the weekend. I you know, get my kids up on Friday morning and go, hey, you got to get up for school, but the, but the weekend's coming. It's coming tomorrow. Don't forget daylight savings time this weekend. You do lose an hour of sleep going into Sunday, but it's always worth it. I, I don't know if you feel this way. I've got family members, my wife being one of them, who just hates that losing of the hour of sleep. But I'm always like, it's just one day. And uh, you're, you're going to get more daylight now. And that's my favorite. It's like, okay, spring is coming, summer's coming, we can hold on to that. But I don't know, maybe you feel differently. But uh, don't forget, it's daylight savings time. And I'm hoping that you've got a great weekend planned ahead of you. My family, I don't think we got much on the calendar for this week. I could be wrong this weekend. I mean, I could be wrong. As I said in an earlier hour, we're heading out of town at the end of next week. And so uh, until then, I think we're just going to have some fun family time, which man, I just love it. My kids, 17, 13 and 11, that's the ages of my kids. And it feels like that time of life where you're just like grabbing as much family time as you can uh, being together as you can. And uh, because you know, the, (laughs) the days are long, but the years are short. And so uh, enjoying that time. Well, We hope that you've got a good weekend planned ahead of you. I wanted to read from this week. Uh, I feel like we do this every week, but Scott Sauls, he is one of our most quoted pastors here on The Common Good. Scott Sauls, he is a prolific writer. He's written books like Jesus Outside the Lines and A Gentle Answer. He also blogs regularly. That's what we're about to read from uh, at scottsauls.com. Uh, He's a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in uh, Nashville. Uh, Jokingly, he told Ian, hell, you could go just uh, track down Scott Sauls now. Uh, And he is just kind of prolific. A lot of time on Twitter, if you follow Scott Sauls. Anyway, he writes, and I love every time Scott Sauls writes, uh, but Scott wrote this the other day uh, at his blog, scottsauls.com. He wrote, when faith feels like defeat. Let me just read some of it. Solz writes, I lost my mother last year after 10 years of Alzheimer's related decline. Time ran out. uh, Time ran out in what affected families call the long goodbye. I didn't shed any tears when she died, not because I didn't love her, but because a decade of incremental ascending grief was already behind me. By the time mom died, I was out of tears and content to release her into heaven's care. I can't think of anything positive to say about Alzheimer's. I won't even try. It's cruel demoralizing, dehumanizing disease. Recently, I enlisted the services of a counselor and my sessions with him, some uncomfortable things about my life and about me had been uncovered. In the uncovering, the counselor recommended that I add a trauma specialist to my treatment. As it turns out, I am less whole from the top um, than the optics of my optics of my life suggest. I have a good health, a wonderful wife, two beautiful daughters, a congregation that loves us, some excellent friends and more opportunity than I ever dreamed of. But behind the curtain of this wonderful looking life of mine, there also exists a small, sometimes scared, self-doubting man whose story includes the aforementioned hard realities. I'm a mess, a busted up sinner who's dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly needs mending Every person you encounter, including the one in the mirror, is fighting a hard battle. This past year has felt like too much, like a pile on. Sometimes I wonder all why all of this? Why all at once? Do you ever feel that way? I'm an American who's been shaped to expect comfort. Saul's writes, because of this, I'm vulnerable to cynicism, moroseness, and self-pity when my outside and inside worlds betray expectations. The cultural air I breathe has trained me to think that life should be more carefree, predictable, and in control than it is. Having been above world's privileged minority for most of my life, luxuries like good health, decision-making power over what and how much I eat, higher education, physical safety, social networks, clean water, and access to things I need and want have felt more like entitlements than luxuries. I've never buried my own child or experienced irrevocable theft. I am a well-off American man. As such, I have been conditioned to expect that life, my life, will run smoothly. I've also spent many years ignoring some betrayals in the past which my counselor is helping me process at the age of 52. As an elder led our church in prayer recently, he says, "Uh, Lord, this has been a year filled with disruption, isolation, confusion, illness, and death. We ask for relief, but not without the revival of our hearts. These are heart reviving lessons that preach loudest through pain. As C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Uh, He goes on to say, one such lesson in this world is that this world as it is, is not our final home. Now, no matter how hard we try to make it so, this present world refuses to be our paradise. Mercy reveals itself through regret, hurt, and fear. I'm not alone in realizing this, he says. Many of the world's greatest souls became the best selves, not in spite of, but because of their own distress. Cowper wrote ho- uh, hopeful hymns and Van Gogh brushed epic paintings while contemplating suicide. Spurgeon preached some of his best sermons while depressed. Lincoln, Churchill, and King battled melancholy. Princess Diana suffered from an eating disorder at the peak of her fame and impact. Beethoven went blind. C.S. Lewis buried his wife after a short cancer-ridden marriage. Frankel, Weisel, and Tenboom uh, Ten survived the Holocaust. Anne Voskamp lost her sister and Joni Erickson Tata her ability to walk in tragic accidents. Christine Kane suffered abuse and Tim Keller got terminal cancer. John Perkins uh, endured jail beatings and death threats from white supremacists. One grief expert noted that the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of depth. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Beautiful people, the ones we admire, the ones who change the world for good, the ones we like and want to be like, those people do not just happen. This axiom that beautiful people do not just happen also demands our attention from Scripture. Job lost 10 children, his wife's affection and his livelihood and reputation in one day. Moses stuttered, Jacob limped, Sarah was infertile. Tamar and Bathsheba were assaulted. David was betrayed by his son. Hosea's wife fell into prostitution, as did Rahab. Ruth was widowed in her youth. Mordecai was oppressed and belittled. Jeremiah battled depression, as did Elijah. Gideon doubted God, as did Thomas. Mary and Joseph sought asylum from a reign of terror. Mary and Martha buried their brother. John Mark was rejected by Paul. Peter hated himself, and Jesus wept. As we read the Bible, it is important to see that every book, except the small handful of them, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Song of Songs, was authored by someone who was enslaved, seeking asylum, in prison, facing persecution, or under another form of distress. Beautiful people do not just happen. And sometimes the deepest, truest faith feels more like defeat than it does victory. I read that and got chill bumps, friends. Because we live in an age out here in the West that says, you know what? The chief aim of man is comfort. Uh, The chief aim is uh, having all our ducks in a row. It is prosperity. And then you just look at all the men and women, not only in recent history, but in biblical history, whose lives were marked by pain, suffering. And, and it wasn't just an aspect of their lives. It was the formative a- aspect of their life. It's what formed them. And, and we, we wrestle with these things and we go, man, how do I, how do I, um, how do I face the struggles of this world? Is it an opportunity for me to grab hold to God, to be formed, to allow him to use it as his megaphone? As Lewis said, such Good words from Scott Sauls. We've got it up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, another article from the Gospel Coalition, The War for Your Worship. That is coming up next on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, a hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. Excited to have you with us as we look towards the weekend. The weekend is upon us. Hopefully you've got plans and, and you're looking forward to some uh, rest and relaxation. Well, maybe at least a little bit of yard work. That's just Sometimes yard work is just so fun. Uh, we did an article earlier from the Gospel Coalition, kind of what I like to do when I'm doing the show by myself and I don't have somebody else to talk to, is uh, to just kind of go through articles. Let some articles speak to us. Let some of them kind of talk to us, articles that have caught my eye. So hopefully you enjoy that. Uh, and, and the Gospel Coalition is regularly a good spot to do that. We talked about one earlier about doom scrolling that came out of the Gospel Coalition. But here is the article from Trevin Wax that just came out yesterday, entitled The War for Your Worship, The War for For your worship. I want to read a little bit of this from Trevin Wax. He said, There is a war going on for our worship. Being humans by nature, we will worship something. The question is will we worship the God who made us in his image or something we make in ours? Make no mistake, you're in a spiritual battle. The pull of old idols can be powerful. We must not underestimate the gravitational force of feelings and fears on our hearts. How then can we respond wisely in the midst of this battle? Let's pause there for a second. Uh, This is one of the absolute foundational uh, ideas that we all must not just wrestle with, but come to terms with. It's exactly what he said at the beginning, that being humans by nature, we will worship something. The question is, will we worship the God who made us or something we make in our own image? This idea, like, there's no functional atheists out there. We all worship something. And, and the Christian says our, our worship, uh, is centered, uh, in our Heavenly Father. Like, that is where our worship is positioned. That is where it faces that, uh, to think of it another way, what takes the center of our lives? Wh- wh- in which way is my life oriented? Uh, and the the Christian message is to say, my worship is only the only thing worthy of my worship. And the only thing worthy of our worship is our heavenly father. It's that picture of Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah is called up into the throne room of God. Uh, he sees just even the, the robe, the edge of the robe of God. He, he sees all that's going on, the majesty and awe And to that, Isaiah falls down and says, I am not worthy to be in your presence. I am a dead man. It is this idea that in light of God, he is all that is worthy to be worshipped. That he is all that is worthy to be praised. And that that is our our posture and our message, one of awe of our Heavenly Father. But we do worship other things functionally, uh, most notably Right. Another way to put it, there's always something on the throne. There's always something in the center. And I can think of a couple uh, that are quite regular. You know, we worship ourselves. I think that's the number one thing that many of us worship. We worship our own self-interest, our own accomplishments. We are functionally the center of our own world. Some of you who have kids, you worship your kids. We worship money. Uh, these are all the types of things that we do worship. Well, that's what Trevin Wax is getting at here. It is the age old question of idol worship. If you want to read more, if you're like, ah, we don't have idols. I never, I don't have this statue in my front yard. I don't have this golden calf. Well, uh, just because we don't have those, we are still very much in the business of idol worship. And, uh, Tim Keller wrote beautifully. He, Tim, Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's a very short book. It does not take long to get through. Uh, but it's called Counterfeit Gods. I'd encourage you to check it out because it gets at this exact topic. Well, Wax is going to say this. How do we respond wisely in the midst of this battle? He says, one, beware the pull of old idolatries under new circumstances in Exodus 32. Uh, in Exodus 32, he says, we see Moses up on Mount Sinai. And he does. And when he doesn't come down quickly, uh, the Israelites panic and take man- matters into their own hands. They make a golden calf of worship. They say they want God to go before them, but they're looking back to Egypt, to the calf. The people are returning to familiar gods. This is a new circumstances, but an old idolatry. They tell Aaron they want to make a feast to the Lord. Idolatries come in all kinds of forms, and sometimes they come not in your own rejection of God, but in your embrace of the wrong ideas about God. A.W. Tozer wrote, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. You may uh, may not be tempted to bow down before a golden calf, but what happens when life goes crazy, when you feel scared and disoriented? How often your fears lead you back to old habits and sins, like Israel. You're not saying you reject God. No, you wouldn't want to leave him or rebel against him. You must turn to God and something else. You just trust God and the old idols and habits that you bring comfort. Perhaps it's alcohol, food, drugs, maybe your job because your identity is there. Some hold more tightly to their possessions, their money. Some turn to sex, others comfort in their status or reputation. Sometimes in times of crisis, the things you turn to are the very things God has blessed you with. God has given you your possessions. He has given you the people around you. He has given you your career, your reputation. But like the children of Israel, we take the gold that God has given and craft an idol in our hearts and put our trust. Learning from Israelites example, we need to be aware of old idolatries that show up in new circumstances. That's number one. And number two, he says, behold, the greater vision of God's glory in showing mercy. As the narrative unfolds, we see God's anger against the Israelites' idolatry. He threatens to destroy them, but Moses begs him not to. He had encountered the great I am. Moses had. Moses was captivated by the glory and fame of God, not the glory and fame of his own name. Moses' example, Moses understands that at stake here, he pleads with God not to destroy them. Moses' example is difficult for us. We're inclined to think of ourselves at the center of the universe, to maximize our sincerity and minimize our sins. We think that we are valuable and important, and that's why God loves us. But God is the most wonderful, most glorious being in the universe. He is all about his glory because in the display of his glory, he demonstrates great love. We need this vision of God in all of his wondrous power And we need to pray for our church this way. We need to pray that our families this way and for our country. God, for the sake of your great name, have mercy. We don't only ask this for us and for our good, but for your glory. That's second. Number three, believe that God's judgment of sin is righteous. He says it's easy to shift blame when confronted about your sin. When Moses returns to the people, Aaron shifted blame like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, The battle for our worship is real, he says. Uh, It says God didn't destroy the Israelites as a whole. Judgment did not come. Uh, It is only God who will satisfy. God executed this as a sign of judgment to show just how severe their sin was and that he was righteous. And Trevin Wax ends by saying the battle for our worship is real. God wants our complete worship. He deserves our complete worship. He is not to be trifled with, and he is, a, he is enough to satisfy. To add on, anything else is nothing more than idolatry. Let's not make idols, he says. Let's worship the one true God in all of his glory. I don't know about you guys. I need to hear these reminders. I just need to hear these reminders sometimes about the uh, our propensity to idol worship, to put other things or people on the throne that only God deserves. Uh, And is worthy of the war for our worship. We'll get that up on our Facebook page, uh, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, I want to end the show with some audio from John Maxwell. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Uh, My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. Uh, really glad to have you joining us. Uh, We ever since really for the last year uh, since the coronavirus kind of changed our lives one of the things we've been trying to do is to end our shows with a little bit of whether it be encouragement or inspiration uh, or also uh, some things to challenge us and so we've been trying to do that as we send you off into your nights and in this case into the weekend and Uh, I'm sure if you've been around, especially church world for any amount of time, you're fully aware who John Maxwell is. John Maxwell, former pastor, uh, but now he's much more well-known for being the best-selling author and speaker on leadership. He is like the leadership guru. Uh, He writes, he speaks, uh, he's written more books than I've read in my life, I think. And John Maxwell getting up there in age, but still very prolific. Uh, Very prolific. And so John Maxwell had something to say, uh, not surprisingly, about leadership. This is like 30 seconds long. I want you to hear this. Let's listen to what John Maxwell had to say. Leadership isn't based on what we know. Leadership is based upon who we are. And one of the things that people want to know, if they're going to let you lead them, is do you care for them? That's a huge question. Do they care for me? And if we care for them, now they're willing to follow. So Maxwell goes on to there to say something really important. Leadership is not based on what you know. It's based much more on who you are. That people much more care. uh, They need to know that you care before they care what you know. I I feel this deeply as a pastor, as one who wants to lead people and encourage people and point people in a direction. And it becomes a really huge question that people ask, whether you're a boss of a business, you're a parent, you're a pastor, uh, whatever, wherever you're trying to be, right? Some people say leadership is just defined simply as trying to take people somewhere. So wherever it is that you're leading, we're all leaders in some way. the greatest definition or the greatest result of leadership, the greatest indication of leadership is are people following you. You can just look behind you and go, well, there's nobody there. Or yeah, there they are. And, And Maxwell makes a really vital point that I wanted to leave us with today. And that's this, the people don't know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care say it again. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People want to know that you love them, that you're for them. That could be the worker in your office who's on your team. That could be the the servant at your church. That can be even your kids. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That becomes, I've often said around our church that uh, I've said to our staff and stuff that we are primarily in the people business. But I actually think the more that I go through life, the more I think that every business is that. Like you're in the people business when you're leading and you're managing and you're inspiring and you're doing whatever it is to try to bring people along from point A to point B. They wanna know that you love them, that you're for them, that you have their best in mind before you tell them what they have to do. Leadership is about inspiration. It's about come. Jesus said it come and follow me. Paul said, Follow me as I follow Jesus. Makes me think about Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua had this hard, hard calling. Joshua had this hard, hard calling in which he had to lead the Israelites into the promised land and take over from Moses, the greatest leader that they had ever known. And Joshua was scared. And God said to Joshua, "Do not be afraid." Over and over again, He said, "Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid." Why did He tell him not to be afraid? Because I am with you," He said. Joshua, I am with you. Do not be afraid. And and, and I think we as leaders can take that uh, to heart. Why can we go on? Why can we lead? How do we lead? We lead because God has called us, and He says, "Don't be afraid, for I am with you." And so we. Lead and then how do we lead? We lead in the um, the same way, right? How, how often in our youth did we hear what would Jesus do? Well, I would ask you, how did Jesus lead? If we are Christ followers who are called to um, uh, to follow His patterns, follow His ways, then I would ask, how did Jesus lead? And I would suggest that Jesus led primarily through loving the unlovable through. Uh, showing dignity to those that culture did not show dignity to by uh, by uh, empowering the powerless that Jesus came and he said uh, to his people um, hey I love you I believe in you why else would Jesus have grabbed a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and uh, zealots and whatever else whoever else were his were his guys Jesus, He could have called the best of the best, but in many ways, culturally speaking, he called the worst of the worst. But Jesus said, I love you. I'm going to train you. I'm for you. That when they messed up, he didn't turn his back on them. Uh, When even they denied him, he still restored. And Jesus is a living, walking example as to what does good leadership look like? I mean, Jesus did so much more than that, but in the context of leadership, I think we have so many books on leadership and rightfully so how to lead well, but can we just boil it down again? That leadership is primarily about loving the people who are called to follow you of being a shepherd of serving rather than asking to be served. People can sniff that out when you're, when you see them as a, as a means to your own end, as opposed to, nope, I'm, I might be above you on the organizational chart or whatever else, but. I'm for you. I'm for your advancement. And that's what I am going to do. You know what people do to that? They go, I want to follow that man. I want to follow that woman. John Maxwell uh, is, is so right here when he says people don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care, who needs to know how much you care in your life this weekend or in the next week. It's that person at your church. Is it, a family member of yours? Is it somebody in your office who needs to not know uh, how much you know, but who needs to know how much you care about them? That's the call of Christ in our lives: is to love others even more than we love ourselves. It is to put the needs of others before our ourselves. It is to um, it is to live self self sacrificially. And why do we live self sacrificially? Because we worship a Savior who ultimately sacrificed for us. And so we go live that way to the world. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Hopefully that's helpful. That was a great reminder for me uh, from John Maxwell, and I just wanted to pass it on. I want to close out of the book of Jude. Let's have some doxology time. Let's go to church. Let's close out of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. We're really glad that you joined us this week, and we hope that you do have a great weekend. Join us again on Monday from 4 until 6. Until then, my name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good. here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life.